0: Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we share wisdom and practical tips to help you grow stronger in all areas of your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who offer real-world experiences that you can apply to your own journey. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm Meredith Bell, your host, and it is my privilege to bring you special guests who will inspire and challenge you. And if you enjoy my show, please be sure to rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. My podcast is sponsored by Performance Support Systems, the publisher of software tools and books for improving the way people communicate at work. You can learn more at growstrongleaders.com. And today I am really excited and delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Roger Hall. Roger, welcome to my show.
1: Thank you. I'm grateful to be here.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And before I jump into my first question, let me give you a a more formal introduction. Roger is the author of a wonderful book called Staying Happy, Being Productive, The Big Ten Things Successful People Do. And we'll be talking about some of those things in our conversation today. He is a business psychologist with clients all over the country and he trains leaders to monitor and manage their thinking and we're going to look at that as well. Roger knows great leaders work on themselves first and then success in their company follows. He's worked with thousands of leaders and he especially loves to work loves to work with small entrepreneurial firms. And today we're going to start with uh, a a concept Roger calls freak (laughs) out. And that's about fearing less and living more. So how to overcome worry in an age where panic could be the natural reaction. So Roger, tell us first a little bit about the journey that brought you to the work you're doing today with leaders?
1: Um, kind of the broader journey, I, I, um, uh, I went into graduate school in uh, a sub-discipline called counseling psychology. And at the time, the goal of, of counseling psychologists were to work with high-functioning people to do better. Um, but like many young people, and I was younger at the time, um, I got diverted from my track, and I started doing much more clinical work. And I found out that while I was very good at it, I didn't really enjoy it. And so I, I I I um reshifted my priorities and tried to figure out well how do how do I do this? And the area where where psychologists were helping people to who were doing well to do better or performance psychology were in the military. In sports and in business. And so um, I hired a guy to help, you know, kind of redevelop my career so that I could do this peak performance work with business owners and have been grateful to be doing that for the for the better part of my career now.
0: So when you think about your work with them and this idea of fear, what is it when you get into your initial conversations with them and maybe even in subsequent ones? what are the things you uncover that you find out they're really the most afraid of?
1: Wow. There, there are a lot of things. Um, usually people don't come to me and say, I'm afraid of spiders and snakes. Um, right. um, th- though th- th- that's a, th- what you learn about spiders, fear of sp- spiders and snakes can work with everything else. But most of our fears are really social fears. You know, will I be embarrassed? Um, will I be harmed in this relationship? Will I lose face? Um, am I safe with these people? And, and so when I work with leaders, so much of what they're trying to do is manage their emotions as it, it, as it relates to their social interactions with others. You know, human beings are are pack or herd animals and so much of what we do is is predicated on how we interact with others. So m- most of the fears I'm dealing with are, you know, are my people going to take me seriously? Am I a phony? Um, and it, all those are, are related to, you know, fear of embarrassment or fear of humiliation or, or, or fear of being found out as incompetent. Um, you know, there, there's a pantheon of other fears, but it's mostly the social fears that come up.
0: And with those, um, how do you uncover those? What kinds of uh, questions do you ask or stories do they end up telling you that help you get a handle on what what they're really struggling with?
1: Yeah, one of the easiest things is, is you know, when, when you're falling asleep at night, what keeps you up or what wakes you up in the middle of the night and what do you find yourself um, preoccupied with? Um what I ask them is about their airtime. And and I, I have what's called an airtime test, which is when I'm doing nothing, what's in my head? And if you're not related to me by blood or by marriage, and you're in my airtime, um, I know that there's something out of balance. And so so for many of the the people i work with those leaders i find out what what's in their head and it, it really is what's in their stream of consciousness and we all have this stream of consciousness of all of these thoughts that come in and out of our head all day long and most people never sample what's in that stream of consciousness and and so what i encourage people to do is you know stick a ladle in or if you're really you know if you're really aggressive stick a bucket in and sample What's in our, what's in my stream of consciousness. And what most people find is that there's garbage in their stream of consciousness. They tell themselves things that if, if a stranger came into the room and said those things to them, there would be a fight. And yet they say these things to themselves all day long. So it's important for leaders to recognize, okay, what's, what's in my head, because what's in our head comes out in our behavior. And so the first part of being a leader is, and, and you, you, you referred to this, is monitoring and managing your thinking. Because if I don't know what's happening in my head, that's self-awareness, and then I can't control that, what's happening in my head or control my emotions, then that infects everybody I work with. Um, I, I worked with a, a president of a company and he told me once he said it doesn't matter if the distribution center is on fire whenever i walk through the front door i walk slowly i greet people and i ask them how they're doing as soon as the door to my office closes then i can go then, then i can show my emotions he says because if i walk in in a hurry reception will then call accounting accounting will then call marketing marketing will then call production. He said, by the time I'm to my office, there are 250 people I've infected with my bad mood. And so it's so important for leaders to recognize, you know, most of the people are are looking at you to see how how you feel. And mm-hmm. that's why it's so very important to be self-possessed and to know what's happening.
0: Boy, that's such an important point. Do you have examples of clients who didn't know to operate and walk in slowly. They didn't have that awareness that this person did. And, you know, so tell us an example of somebody that had a real issue and how you helped them become better at that awareness piece.
1: Well, you know, for, for some people, they're, they're really little things and, and, you know, some people, and and I'll, I'll give you an example I've used, I've seen with some people is, like when I'm really concentrating and and I've seen this in other people, but I'll use my myself as an example. When I'm really concentrating, it's the same as my furious face. And so if people don't know that, boy, you've really captured my attention and they don't know that looks almost exactly the same as I'm going to take your head off, then they can be intimidated by me. And so with with some of the leaders I've worked with, I've watched them interact. And I said, you know, you you have this sort of behavioral thing where you look angry when you're when you're concentrating. And they said, No, I don't. And I go, Oh, yeah, yeah, you do. And so, you know, we 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 get them to look at it. And sometimes it it helps to videotape yourself or have somebody in a meeting videotape you and you realize these behavioral sort of Ticks that you have. And as soon as you're aware of it again, once you've monitored it, then you can manage it. And, and it doesn't mean you have to change your facial expression. You know, for some people, it means smiling more. Um, But for other people, it means letting people know in advance, Hey, I've got this facial expression. I'm not angry. You just, you've just captured my attention.
0: Boy, I identify with that. I remember years ago, when we worked in a physical office and we had a team of people and we did a 360 feedback on each of the three owners. And that was one of the things I got. That's so funny. You mentioned it because I would be at my desk working on something. And if somebody came in, they, one of the feedback pieces I got was, you know, you look, they didn't use the word angry but annoyed, you know, Uh that they were, that I was being interrupted. And so when we had our debrief with the team and I said, this is something I didn't know I do. And I apologized to them. And I said, from now on, I will close my door when I am needing to have that quiet time, you know, to concentrate on something so that you'll know if you need to interrupt me, you can, but I am focused on this. So it's interesting. That must be a more widespread <laughs> occurrence than I uh, had realized before.
1: It, it, it's actually pretty common when, when we're in deep concentration um, and, and and we're brought up out of that deep level of concentration, it is an irritant and it does kind of annoy. Now we can, we can you know, we can right the ship and we can get back to normal, but people recognize it as happening. And so the if you recognize, okay, when I'm interrupted, I will be annoyed. Okay. I've got, I've got to fix that right away and say, Hey, glad you're here. Sorry. I am in the middle of, of of thinking something. I I do want to help you. So a a lot of it is first that awareness it's, Mm -hmm. it's observing yourself and then, then the self-control or willpower to, to, to say, say the next thing.
0: Yeah. That, I think that's really important. One of the things that um, you also said that I just was inwardly chuckling. Fortunately, I have not had this happen in a very long time, but this airtime, who are you thinking? you know, who's running through your stream of consciousness? I can remember in when I was an employee in different places, and there might be one person that I particularly had a problem with, boy, they did occupy a lot of space in my head, <laughs> off hours and in, in the office. And so once you help someone identify that that person is taking up a lot of airtime, how do you help them make that transition to, to not do that or not have that be the case?
1: Well, it, it really depends on the importance of the person in your life or in your work. And so if you've got a key, you know, a key coworker or a key employee um, who, who's instrumental in the success of your business, then, uh, you know, managing that person is going to take some of your airtime. Um, if, if the person is not central to your life um, and they become more and more destructive in your life. Then I encourage people to reevaluate. Boy, is, is this a person that you want to have in your circle? Um, and I'm I'm a little bit ruthless about people um, who who are taking too much of my airtime, and and I I call them tornado magnets, and and these are people who have a disproportionate number of problems and attract a disproportionate number of problems. And, and you, you know who they are in your life. Every time I introduce this, this term tornado magnet, people, you, people say, oh, I know who you're talking about. They seem to walk in a room and, and you know, the, the, the pictures on the wall start to shake and people start to have fights that they weren't having before. You, you know who they are. They, they create chaos.
0: happy to say I can't think of anyone in my life right now that is like that.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. I know. You know, th- I th-
0: know. But, you know, I think I've learned, Roger, what you're saying. You, you help these leaders that you work with. It, you pay too high of an emotional cost or it takes too much of an emotional toll to try to keep someone like that in your world
1: it, it, it really is a balancing act, which is, is the value they're providing great enough to offset the emotional cost. Mm. And very often leaders um, discount that emotional cost. They say, you know, I, I, it's not that big of a deal when in fact, it really is that big of a deal. And, and, and one of the things I, I, I hammer into my clients is that solving cognitive problems is is a physical activity. You know, our 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 brains occupy between 2 and 5% of our body mass, but use between 20 and 25% of the energy that we consume. So, you know, what's in our head is burning fuel all the time. And so if I'm solving math problems, that burns fuel. But if I'm also solving and dealing with emotional problems, that burns fuel. And so if I'm, if I'm burning fuel to solve the emotional problems that I'm dealing with with a, a, a troubling employee, that's preventing me from solving the strategic or tactical problems in my business. And so it really isn't just about a money issue is this person making me more money than they're costing me it's are they taking my cognitive attention so that i can't solve these other problems
0: boy that is a really import, important point because i don't think i think we underestimate the impact uh an uh, as an unhealthy person in our lives really can have
1: and, and I, and, and, Yeah. Sometimes we don't recognize it until they're taken out of our life. And suddenly, you know, the the flowers are brighter and the sky is bluer.
0: Yeah. It makes me think, you know, do you ever have them ask a question like, what would your life? I want you to imagine what would your life be like if you didn't have this person in your thoughts and in your your world?
1: Um. it, that's a fantastic exercise is, is to get people to, to in their head project out into the future if their world was different. Um, sometimes people can't imagine it be, because they're so consumed with the fear of of what will they lose that they can't imagine a better future. And, and so part of it is helping them practice and rehearse what could be better, because the way our brains work is our brain's imagination always goes to the worst case scenario. It's self-protective. Um, you know, fear is the most self-protected of, of, of our emotions. It keeps us alive.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: our brain fast forwards to disaster, you know, um, We, you know, we don't imagine um, if the elevator fails, right? If you're in an elevator and you're imagining an elevator failure, what do you imagine? Falling. Falling all the way down. Nobody imagines, oh, there are 47 different safety mechanisms. You're going to drop maybe five inches, okay and then it's going to break okay the biggest problem you're going to have is you know prying the doors open and climbing out that that's really but nobody imagines that they they imagine the plunge not the inconvenience Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so 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 with with a difficult person in our lives we imagine the disaster that will occur if they're not there but it really takes discipline to imagine what could be better.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, as I'm listening to you, I was thinking about sometimes, and I know some people like this, that tend to worry about the future, not just related to a specific individual, but just the worst case that could happen, you know, or, and they just get preoccupied with that. And again, Going back to what you were saying, that takes a lot of airspace <coughs> and energy that they could be devoting to more productive activities. So, how do you help them really adopt a different, either mindset or attitude around that?
1: Yeah, I view worry. I call it malignant advance planning. So, if 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 I have a problem, I need to solve people who are good at solving problems, imagine in the future, the problem they need to solve. And then they start to come up with a plan for solving that problem. What happens with worry is our emotions get so high. There's a a part of our brain um, called the amygdala, two little structures, the size and shape of the ends of my little fingers. And and they're not the totality of fear, but they're kind of like where the fuse gets lit and it all, you know, it all gets started in the amygdala. And what it does is it sends these signals up to the front of our brain that turns off the part of our brain that solves problems. So if you're out in the woods being chased by a mountain lion, you can't do math problems, right? You, 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 you can't do it because all you're trying to do is stay alive. And so when, when people worry, what happens is they imagine disaster that sends signals up that turns off the part of their brain that can solve the problem. And then they work in this loop and the loop is a disaster loop. They, they fast forward to disaster, can't come up with a solution because the prefrontal part of their brain is turned off. They loop back to disaster and it only amps up their emotion, which keeps their prefrontal turned off. So part of it is is settling themselves down and rehearsing. So reducing the emotional level and then rehearsing a solution, a positive solution. And I tell people you only have to come up with one because as soon as you can imagine one positive solution, you know you can adapt on the fly in real life.
0: Well, and I love that you keep it to one because that keeps it simple. People don't feel overwhelmed. Like how on earth could I do that? Do you ever find yourself having to provide them with examples of one solution or are they usually able to come up with it themselves?
1: You know, I mean, we, we've all experienced this. This is why we have other people around us is, is that sometimes we're so overwhelmed with our emotion. We need someone else's spare prefrontal cortex to do the heavy lifting for (laughs) us. Yeah. You know, um, I, I work with lots of financial advisors and in financial situations, people, you know when when the market corrects and goes down, um, people freak out, and so their advisor. I tell them, "You're their spare prefrontal cortex to make sure that they can make good decisions in the midst of that fear." And so, anytime there's an advisor, yeah, part of our job as a, as advisors and guides is to help people come up with solutions they may not have thought of because the amygdala and the limbic system is overwhelming their own ability to solve
0: mm-hmm. the problem. That's so interesting. Well, let's look at maybe the um, the flip side. I think you said you call it the offense of looking at the, the being happy part, being productive, so that you're not as preoccupied by fears and negative thoughts and worries. So what are some of those uh, 10 big things or big 10 things
1: the big ten that things. you talk so,
0: about in your book? Tell us a few of those that people listening could say, Oh yeah, I could do that.
1: Yeah. I, I observed happy, successful people in my life and I started writing down the things that they do. And this is certainly not an exhaustive list. Um, but I figured, you know, 47 things successful people do is just not, gonna, it's not going to work. Um, but I, I, I kind of crystallized it to 10 things. The, the first, which we've talked about a lot already, is thought life, which is um, um, being disciplined in, in a person's thinking. Then it's um, spiritual life. Almost every person I've worked with who's happy and successful has some sort of um, faith practice. And now they're not all the same Faith practice, and I'm not evangelizing, but there's just a ton of research about how people who are part of an organized religious tradition have happier, healthier, longer lives, and, and, and more fun. Um, so those are two. Um, I talk about the importance of love life, that those primary relationships with the people that we love, and it doesn't have to be your partner, but it it, it can be a partner, children, immediate family, social life. Um, and, and when I work with a lot of leaders, many of them are very lonely. They don't have friends. And how important having those social connections are. Um, I talk about nutritional life. The fuel we put into our, our system is what makes our mood, which makes us able to think. It's not just about you know, healthy bones and healthy muscles. It's really about healthy thinking because that fuel fuels our brain. Um, I talk about exercise life that, um, happy people are physically active. I talk about work life and, and, um, most happy, successful people enjoy their work. Now, not every day is great, but, um, they typically find meaning in their work. Um, we talk about money life, which is, um, do they, you know, if, Money can't buy you happiness, but it can certainly help you avoid a lot of misery. And if you if you're broke and you don't have any money, it's hard. But it'll only improve the quality of your life to a certain point. And then things kind of flatten out. And so I try to help people find advisors who will help them get out of debt and 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 earn some money and and not blow it. But then on the other end. You know, people who are um, very, very wealthy, they have a different kind of sets of problems. Um, And I call those too much money problems. And so it's finding that balance on your money life. Um, And then the last two are uh, recreational life. Happy, successful people have fun. Um, They do things that they enjoy. And the last is sleep and rest life. That happy, successful people get good quality sleep. It's a foundational habit. And they take time each day and each, way, each week for quiet reflection where they do nothing, where, where, where they meditate, they contemplate, they, they do personal quiet reflection or religious devotion. Every one of them does this on a regular basis. So those are those are the big 10 things.
0: Yes. Let's take that last one for a moment because I'm thinking entrepreneurs who are always busy doing things. Yep. Um, or other other folks in other kinds of work it, this whole idea of, of like human doings instead of human beings. Yeah. The challenge of taking that time to slow down and yeah. do the things that you suggested what are the things that get in our way of doing that and how do you help clients who have not done that make that transition or make time to do it
1: this is what gets in the way is that we have immediate access to stimulation all the time um and when i mean quiet reflection i mean quiet where where nothing is happening Um, you know, lots of people, when they think about quiet reflection or meditation or mindfulness, which is a hot topic now, they think about sitting in a lotus position on a yoga mat and, you know, with some spa music going in the background. That's not me. Okay. I mean, I've done that and I'm not very good at it. Um, But then there are other contemplative practices that, that you can use. In the Middle Ages, it, you can look, it, um, there's a famous cathedral in, in France called the Chartres Cathedral. And in it, there's a, a thing called a labyrinth. Are you familiar with a labyrinth?
0: Uh, not, that, not in that church, no.
1: Okay, so all it is is a drawing on the floor. And it's not a maze where you can get lost, but it's a single path that you walk in a complicated pattern. And it's essentially walking meditation. Mm. And so what I encourage people who are like me, who have this, you know, a brain like squirrel, you know, I mean, always easily distracted is to find that walking meditation. So find a path in your neighborhood or in your community that you know very well and walk it every day. Now it's, it's particularly helpful if you have a dog because then you're going you're gonna to be doing it every day anyway. But then make that a time for quiet reflection. And I find it interesting. I, I used to go for walks in my neighborhood where I used to live. And I was about the only person out for a walk. I actually had someone call the police on me because I was out walking. Uh, because it's so unusual in, in our society for people just to go on a pleasurable walk um, you know, the, the,
0: mm.
1: it, it, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, I didn't get, I didn't get taken into the station, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was all, it was all okay. But, but I would do this same route every day. And that was my quiet contemplation.
0: Mm-hmm. I like the fact that you're offering alternatives to just sitting and you know, closing your eyes for however many minutes and and doing what you might think of as traditional meditation. Yeah, and and, and,
1: and there are people for whom that works great. You know, my, my wife is very good at that. I'm not. Okay. And and I I have a client right now who's 20 minutes every morning, he says it's absolutely transformed his life, but I'm not very good at that, right? But what I encourage people to do is start with 30 seconds. You know, if if you could, if you could just count your breathing for 30 seconds, you're on your way to quiet contemplation and meditation.
0: That's great. And I think that is so important. We think we don't have time for it, but when we do take time to reflect, I've started doing a weekly practice of um, reflecting on my wins for the week and then planning for the next week on the business side. And that makes a huge difference. In fact, I've gotten to where I'm writing them down at the end of a day, because at the end of a week, it's kind of hard to remember what you have had as a win on a daily basis. But it's that, that whole thing of blocking time to recognize what you've done, because do I, I, you find it so easy for people to criticize themselves for what they haven't done instead of giving themselves credit for what they have?
1: So, so there's, I mean, you, you, you've touched on such an important point of, of recording your wins. And, and I talked about it a little bit earlier about how the brain remembers things that'll kill us. And, and there's a, a, a relatively new book called The Power of Bad. And the authors, John Tierney and Roy Baumeister, talk about how our brains so easily go to the worst case scenario and what you've said is, and, and we never, it's its not easy for us to remember the small wins. And that's why gratitude is so important. And, and yours is a modified form of a, of a gratitude discipline, which is on a daily basis, focus on the things for which you're grateful that went well, because if you don't, your brain is designed not to remember the mildly positive, but just the things that'll kill you. So, so to have that discipline practice will bring that to the top of your mind every day. It will improve your mood and your productivity.
0: Mm -hmm. I like that. I hadn't thought about it as if I didn't do that, the focus is on the negative, but I can see where that's easily, you know, a habit that can be, that can be created when you think about some of your clients that have made, let's say the biggest changes and you've helped them really make some transformations, talk a little bit about what the earlier behavior was, what they started doing differently, and then what result they got as, 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 as since they made that change.
1: You know, I mean, there's so many different stories. I, I'll, I'll give you some process comments uh, about what they've done. Um, one person had a wonderful discipline. And I talk about it in in the book of of writing out every day. He had a constant journal. So anytime he'd talk to somebody, he'd be writing out both the content, but also what he was feeling. And he had a bookcase full of these, these, these journals. And so he was able to he was able to monitor and then manage his thinking because he had been writing it out for so long. And he was able to look at these past thoughts from three years ago. He could just open up the book. It was dated and then compare them to right now. Um, so, so that's one discipline. The, the process thing I found is that many of my most successful clients have a history Of athletics. And it's not that they're jocks that makes them successful, but they understand what it's like to have somebody tell them something about themselves so that they'll improve. Many, many good students are are used to being told, you know, oh, you're such a good student, you're so smart, you're so successful. People who have a history of athletics have been told over and over again, here's how to improve. Here's how you messed up. Here's how you improve. Well, that's kind of how life works. Mm. And and the ones who've been most successful have recognized they've, they've done a very good job. I, I have a client who is a, a former marathoner, and he views his work like a marathon. Okay, I don't have to focus on my time. I just have to focus on my heart rate. And if I focus on my heart rate, which is a process, not an outcome, then the outcome will work itself out. So I'm just gonna focus on the process. So we figured out what were the process measures that he would focus in on his work and not the outcome. And lo and behold, the outcomes turned out really well. And so those are those are some of the things that, that some of my really... Um, uh, successful clients have done to change themselves, monitor it, write it down, focus on a process rather than an outcome, and recognize it's a long haul it's mm-hmm. It's really a marathon to make those changes.
0: Oh, I really like all of those points uh, I think especially the process because you know we get told so much about setting this goal, setting this goal, and um and, and again, criticizing ourselves for falling short of where we thought we ought to be today or next week. But, it, but I think your point is such an important one that if we really get the right process in place, I think that's a key piece, right? The process itself has to be something that is moving us forward. So how do you help someone recognize when their process is not serving them well?
1: Well, and, and that's the part of the conversational discovery, is, is, you know, it, 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 it's, it's very easy to write a strategic book, but in order for someone to change, it really is about the tactics of what do they do every day. And very often we'll find some tiny little habit that they have, you know, that, that takes them off course. And if we'll just change that one habit in the process of their day suddenly things open up in ways that they had never discovered, but it requires discovery and conversation, you know, and I think books are great. You know, I, I read a ton of books, but the real magic happens in drilling down and observing those small little behaviors that one small change can make a really big shift in the process of their day or in how they solve a problem.
0: That's great. It, and it's so true. Uh, and it often helps to be working with someone like you that can listen carefully and notice, well, what about this that the person didn't even realize they were doing a lot of this is unconscious, isn't it? Well, most of our,
1: most of our daily life is unconscious. We have so many habits. If, if we didn't have these habits, Meredith, we, we couldn't survive. And so So, so much of our life is on autopilot because it's more efficient that way. Um, And every one of us has blind spots. Every one of us, I have a ton of blind spots and I need people around me to say, you're not aware of that thing. Oh, okay. if, if we if we think we all have it together, you know, I've got, you know, I, I, I'm super deluxe and, and I don't have any problems, then we're lying to ourselves. We all need that outside observation. You know, I mean, you know, you see this part here. I've never seen this part of my head without assistance. Okay, <laughs> so I, you know, people need to tell me, you know, you're bald, you know, I I didn't realize it without assistance. Okay. Cause I can't see that without help.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's a, that's a good example. And we all do have that. And I think it kind of circles back to having people in our lives who are willing to tell us the truth and, and not sugarcoat what we need to hear or not, because other people might be afraid of us. You know, we've been talking about our own fears, but if others are afraid of us because of how we've reacted in the past, let's say, to feedback they've given us, how do you help a client who's, who is surrounded by people that aren't telling him or her the truth
1: because well, of fear? And, and I, I become that first person to tell them the truth because I have enough clients that if you fire me, I still have plenty of other clients to pay my mortgage. Um, So, but my, I tell them, my job is to tell you the truth as best as I see it Um, because all of their employees, you know, the, the owner or founder of the company, the president of the company is the least well-informed and the most lied to person in the organization, because everyone wants to please that person in a position of power So when they hire me, that's my job is to tell them the truth as best as I see it. But the next thing I tell them is it's going to take you at least a decade to build a friendship with a person who will tell you the truth. And if they tell me I don't have any, I tell them, well, now's the time to start. Um, and, And so if I look at, and I'm very blessed, Meredith, I have a half a dozen guys who I have known for a long time my uh, of my circle of people who will tell me the truth the one i've known the least long i've known for gosh 17 years
0: Mm. one of
1: them since i was in the ninth grade you know one of them since i was a freshman in college and these are people who will go who will tell me roger you know are you crazy Are you know what what are you what are you thinking um because they, they don't interact with me like somebody who's just gotten to know me, who thinks I'm, you know, oh, you have a book and you did, you know, you're, you got all this, whatever. They're willing, they, they know what I was like in the ninth grade, you know, and so they're willing to, to tell me, that's a stupid idea. And I need those people and leaders need those people around them who will say, dude, that's, that's stupid, um, because at work, you know, I had a president of a company. He, he got promoted to president. And I said, how do you like it? He goes, it's awful. He said, three weeks ago before I was president, I came up with this idea. And, and these two guys in the, in the staff meeting said, that's a stupid idea, it'll never fly. He says, I just ran it past the same two guys this morning and they told me what a wonderful idea it was. He said, the idea didn't change. And I said, yeah, but you did. Your role did. And suddenly they're telling him pleasant lies Mm. because he's the boss now. Mm -hmm. So we need people who will tell us, well, that's a dumb idea.
0: (laughs) That's a good point. And I think it speaks to creating a culture where people feel that it's safe and okay, to be honest, even with the person who is at the highest level.
1: And the person at the highest level and that requires trust. Mm-hmm. And so everyone in the organization is, is dependent on the leader of the organization showing that he or she is, is trustworthy with the power that they have, that they don't yeah. use it arbitrarily, that the, that they're not vindictive.
0: Mm. That's a, a great point, I think, to to wrap up on. Roger, because it just shows the importance of uh, the top leadership really setting the stage for everyone else. And it circles back to this whole theme of yours, which is monitoring and managing their thoughts, which then influence what they say to people. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to encourage folks to pick up your wonderful book, Staying Happy being productive and let people know how can they connect with you and learn more about your work?
1: Yeah, they, they, can, they can go to my website, which is uh, drrogerhall.com, drrogerhall.com. Um, I have a course called uh, the Freak Out Course and it's at freakoutcourse.com. Uh, and if you'd like to take a quiz to find out, uh, are you freaking out? There's freakouttest.com. And then there's one called the worryometer.com And so all of those things will help you um, to learn more about what I do. And if you if you'd like the book, um, you can get it at my website or at stayinghappybeingproductive.com.
0: Great. Thank you, Roger. I so appreciate the work that you are doing to help people worry less, freak out less and be happier and, and more productive with their lives so that it has that ripple effect of, you know, influencing others in a positive way.
1: Uh, you, you've kind of summarized the, the purpose and meaning in my life is to improve people's lives so that they can improve the lives of others.
0: That's great, Roger. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now, head over to growstrongleaders.com slash free and grab our ebook, Listen Like a Pro. You'll find out how to connect on a deeper level with the people who matter to you. And while you're there, check out our two books, Connect with Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.